Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I'm Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights of free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today's episode focuses on so-called extramural speech, speech that professors engage in in the public sphere about matters of general public concern. This type of professorial speech has been a growing source of controversy in the age of social media, in which professors find it easier than ever to put their unvarnished thoughts and opinions on any number of controversial topics in front of potentially vast public audiences. I'm pleased to be joined by David Raban. David is the Dar Jamail, Randall Haig Jamail, and Robert Lee Jamail Regents Chair at the University of Texas School of Law. He's a First Amendment scholar and the author of Free Speech in Its Forgotten Years, 1870 to 1920. He's also an expert on academic freedom. He served as, gen- as legal counsel and later as general counsel for the American Association of University Professors, and he has chaired the Committee on Academic Freedom and Tenure at the AAUP. He currently serves on the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. So David, thank you for joining me and welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and David just mentioned before we started that this is his very first podcast ever, so we'll try to be gentle. <laughs> We'll see how it goes. Um, hopefully you won't uh, run in fright from having experienced such a thing. Um, so let me start with sort of the beginnings of uh, these kinds of debates. The protection of teaching and scholarship is at the very core of academic freedom. Uh, but from the very beginning of these debates about introducing academic freedom protections into the United States, there's also been an interest in protecting what professors might say outside the context of a classroom or at a scholarly conference or in their scholarly writings. Uh, so what were the early considerations regarding this type of speech? Yes, well, the relationship between academic freedom and political expression was a major issue of concern and debate among the founding members of the AUP, uh, including those who wrote the path-breaking 1915 declaration about academic freedom. So one view, kind of at one end of things, was the well-known law professor, John Wigmore, who differentiated academic freedom from political expression. Uh, And he corresponded right before the framing of the 1915 Declaration with Arthur Lovejoy, another leading early figure in the AUP, both eminent academics, of course. So uh, for Wigmore, academic freedom only related to academic speech. Political expression was expression unrelated to academic speech and therefore not covered by academic freedom. And in Wigmore's view, professors should have full protection under academic freedom for their expert academic speech, but no protection for their 
political expression. According to Wigmore, academic freedom gives professors special privileges over and above the ordinary citizen. And he said it is not unfair that professors should relinquish something in exchange for this special privilege. And he made an analogy to clerics in the Middle Ages who received immunity from military service and from civil taxation, but they had to confine themselves to their religious obligations. So that was Wigmore's rather extreme view. Uh, he recognized, Wigmore did, that the boundary between academic expression and political expression is sometimes hard to draw. And as an example of a difficulty at the border, he mentioned a professor of economics discussing contemporary public policy disputes regarding economic issues. But he said in most cases, the difference between academic speech and political speech is clear. So he gave two examples of what he thought was clearly academic speech, though it could be extramural and still academic. One example, and these were real uh, examples, uh, was a lecture on corporation law, writing an article criticizing a recent judicial decision on corporation law. Another example he gave was a lecture by a specialist in international law that criticized President Cleveland's message to Great Britain about its interference in Venezuela, extramural but related to academic expertise and therefore protected by academic freedom. More generally, he said, uh, scholarship and teaching is clearly academic speech protected by academic freedom. Speech on behalf of a political candidate, he said, is clearly political expression not protected by academic freedom. And he didn't think there should be professors uh, protection for professors to engage in political expression. In his example of the uh, uh, international law lecture, um, uh, he's thinking of a lecture to a public audience, not a lecture in a classroom. That's that's yes. the part that makes it extramural. So he's he's imagining you're speaking to a general audience, but about your subject matter expertise. Exactly right. right. Exactly right. Okay, at the opposite extreme, and and love was Arthur Lovejoy, who exchanged letters with Wigmore, and they both wrote articles drawn from their letters in the Nation magazine, people could look it up, I think published in 1915. So Lovejoy said his view was academic freedom should extend to all political expression at the other extreme of views. And Lovejoy emphasized that it was just too easy for people to use political expression as a pretext as a pretext for dismissing professors for their academic views. So you don't have to say you're dismissing a professor for his or her academic views. You just have to say we're dismissing the professor for political views, but really it's for academic views. In order to protect academic expression, Lovejoy said, one must also protect political expression. And then there were kind of views in between. It, so, so I'm just trying to uh, stress yeah. how major 
a, a point this was from the very beginning of American discussion of academic freedom. Okay, so Roscoe Pound, professor of Harvard Law School, soon to be dean, he wrote saying, also Pound, one of the drafters of the 1915 Declaration of Principles on Academic Freedom, Pound said, it's impossible to confine academic freedom to what he called a watertight compartment labeled subject matter expertise. He said professors ought to be able to throw light from their specialized knowledge on broader issues. And as his example, he used a professor of Greek who, according to Pound, should be able to apply insights from his study of Thucydides on political revolutions to issues in current politics. Right. So that's within the AUP. Now, another interesting comment also early on, and this is quite well known among uh, scholars of academic freedom, was uh, a comment by President Lowell of Harvard University in 1917. Harvard was threatened with the loss of a $10 million bequest. That's when $10 million was real money, right? <laughs> Still is today, but imagine the value of $10 million in 1917. So this was a donor who was offended that a professor at Harvard opposed American intervention in World War I. The professor was sympathetic to Germany in many respects. Lowell said, this is not an issue of academic freedom. Rather, it's an issue of free speech because the views on World War I did not relate to the academic expertise of the professor. And Lowell added, in his view, it is easy to differentiate typically easy. It's easy to differentiate academic freedom from political expression. And his example was that a professor of astronomy has no special knowledge of or no special right to speak about the protective tariff. With respect to the protective tariff, the professor of astronomy is in no different position than any other citizen. Now he added, and I, I think this is very important to keep in mind in discussing the relationship between academic freedom and political expression. In Lowell's view, even though this was political expression and not academic freedom, it should be protected. So one can protect political right. expression without calling it academic freedom. And Lowell's view was on matters of political expression, the universities should not intervene one way or the other. And if a professor is speaking in a way that violates the law, that's for the state to decide. The university has responsibility over educational and academic matters. It should not take on the added responsibility of policing the political expression of its professors which in Lowell's view has nothing to do with the university. So one last thing maybe on the general background, uh, which is uh, how the 1915 Declaration on Academic Freedom addressed this issue of the relationship between academic freedom and political expression. 
1915 Declaration extended academic freedom essentially to all speech by professors, including political expression. And it, it didn't do much to justify that position, I have to say. Uh, basically, the 1915 Declaration said that professors ought to have the same rights of political expression as all other citizens. Why that should be called academic freedom was not explained. And, and the framers of the 1915 Declaration were divided over the very issue of whether to extend academic freedom to political expression, which may explain where they were silent about it. But they also added, as obvious, without explaining why it was obvious, as often happens when people fall <laughs> they don't explain why, uh, they said it's obvious that professors are under a peculiar obligation to avoid hasty or unverified or exaggerated statements and to refrain from intemperate or sensational modes of expression including when speaking on political matters. So one more thing to add, I think, by way of background on this sure. early treatment. Uh, as commentators have noticed, uh, particularly William Van Alstyne and Walter Metzger, the founders of the AUP, the framers of the 1915 Declaration, had strong pragmatic reasons for extending academic freedom to political expression because the law at the time did not protect the political expression of employees, whether in the private sector or the public sector. And as Van Alstyne pointed this out in particular, it was so tempting for professors whose political expression was not protected, who were arguing for protection of academic speech to extend the argument for protection to political expression. As Von Alstein called it, any old port in a storm. Right. <laughs> uh, and academic freedom was the port in the storm of no protection for political expression. And Walter Metzger, I think, in a great phrase said, uh, the framers of the 1915 Declaration extended the cloth of protection over the area in which professors were most exposed. The cloth of protection of academic freedom to the area of political expression where they were most exposed. So that's a long answer to your question. But uh, I think these early debates still kind of resonate today. No, absolutely. Those early debates certainly uh, continue to um, uh, explain where people disagree about these things. And they also highlight what the tensions and issues were um, uh, right, at, right at the beginning. As they first start trying to think through examples, um, you, can, you can see how the same examples uh, would play out in a, in a current context as well. So for Whitmore, for example, though, who um, uh, wanted to draw this sharp distinction, would he also, like Lowell, have said, um, well, the extramural speech is really not academic freedom as such, and it's a, it's a it's political speech and it's distinct, but he would, would he therefore say it's unprotected and you should get fired for it? Or would he have also gone the same direction Lowell would say is, we should conceptualize this differently, we should label it differently, but you should also be protected when you're engaged in that speech. How many people in the early AUP had doubts about 
um, uh, not how you ought to conceptualize and justify uh, that kind of free speech, but whether or not the free speech actually ought to be even protected. I think there was a significant, I don't know how much, but there was a significant strain within the early membership of the AUP feeling that professors ought to limit their political expression. Not as strong as Wigmore saying, you know, that's what you have to do in return for having this special right of academic freedom. But I think they were uncomfortable about professors speaking about politics, thinking, fearing it would jeopardize their position as professors. On Wigmore, what he would think about political expression, I'm not sure, but I recall from my research on uh, free speech in general, he strongly agreed with prosecuting uh, people who spoke against the war. Right. World War One. Uh, so I'm not sure that he was very sympathetic to rights of political expression. Right. So in his case, he would draw the line precisely because he would say those those people engaging in uh, the non-academic speech uh, ought not to get uh, much in the way of protection. It's a little odd that they're that that. Um, uh, they they a lot of these early founders of the AUP are quite that. Um, uh, cautious about um, political speech and whether or not professors ought to engage in it, given that quite a few of them were active public intellectuals. They had a public profile. They talked about things in public. And so uh, you would have thought quite a few of them would be quite sensitive to this notion that uh, they're going around uh, giving uh, speeches in public. Uh, maybe that ought to be protected. Well, it's not. A, Dewey was one of those people, and he yeah. was favor of extending academic freedom to political expression. So I, the, the people who were public intellectuals tended to support the broader definition. But you know, there were many people, many professors, some of whom joined the AUP, some of whom refused to join, mm. because they feared that an organization of professors devoted to the protection of academic freedom would be perceived as a union and would undermine the status of professors generally. So it was a different world back then. Yeah, no, a complicated project. Professors and what they thought was appropriate for professors to do and say, and notice even those who supported extending academic freedom to political expression added, you know, professors have to be specially careful in the way they talk about things. They should be restrained. They right. should be professorial, right? Even right. in their comments on political matters. So actually, on this question, just sort of the, when they're first thinking about importing academic freedom into the United States, they are developing the concepts, they are forming the organization of the AUP. A lot of these ideas are being imported from Germany, in particular, where they had been um, uh, developed uh, a little bit earlier, um, and, and they're borrowing to some degree what uh, what was being uh, talked about in Europe. To what degree was the extra what we characterize as extramural speech? also an issue there. So when they're importing some of these ideas that we ought to be protecting academic freedom uh, from Germany, was extramural speech part of the package? Um, or is that part something that they're adding as they're thinking it through in 1915? So my knowledge of this issue, to the extent I have any, is not from firsthand research, but from reading, and particularly from Walter Metzger's great book on the history of academic freedom. So my understanding from Metzger and some from other things I've read 
in Germany, right, academic freedom, though extensive, was limited to the specialty. Germany was not a democracy right. uh, in the late 19th century, and professors were civil servants in Germany, and they were ex quite severe restrictions on political expression. Right. So Germany, in fact, Germany had probably more protection for academic speech because it didn't have presidents and boards of trustees to be concerned about uh, the impact of speech by academics. So there was substantial protection for academic speech in Germany, but very little protection for political speech. And I, I think it's interesting for us to uh, realize that academic freedom, though often considered to contribute to a democratic society, uh, is not always correlated with democratic societies. And, and Germany in the late 19th century is a good example of that. Yeah, no, interesting that the, the extramural part is really sort of American innovation and, and addition that uh, it comes precisely when you import these ideas into a democratic context um, in which professors are participating in democratic politics more generally. Um, that's Another point, It's yeah. sorry to Keith. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's a little uh, outside our main uh, scope of uh, subject, but related enough to mention, I think, you know, in Germany, students had academic freedom of a sort. Hmm. And the notion of student academic freedom was excised from the American definition in the 1915 declaration. Uh, in part, Walter Metzger says, because students were residents on campus. I mean, there are all kinds of explanations for this, but right. Oh, the American conception of academic freedom, though borrowed substantially from Germany with respect to the academic speech of professors, differs substantially from the German concept, both with respect to extramural speech and with respect to the coverage of students. That's interesting, huh? Yeah, I was not aware of that. Um, uh, yeah, that is an interesting uh, alteration. Um, so. This gets carried forward into the 1940 uh, statement of principles on academic freedom um, and tenure. And it's the 1940 statement uh, that provides the kind of language that a lot of American universities uh, embrace and integrate into their own uh, contractual protections. Um, and it codifies a version of this kind of protection direction real speech. It's uh, the 1940 statement is a, um, a slimmed down uh, version, much more uh, clear and direct about um, what the core uh, principles are. And it um, uh, sort of breaks things out into three prongs um, of speech that ought to be protected, all of which they characterize as um, academic freedom. The uh, first two relating to uh, uh, teaching and uh, research. Uh, but then the third prong, um, in the words of the 1940 statement, um, it protects professors when they uh, speak or write as citizens, uh, they should be free from institutional censorship um, or discipline. And then it goes on to talk about special obligations that um, professors have in that context. And we'll come back to that um, in a minute. Uh, but it's interesting then they use that uh, very specific language about um, speaking and writing as citizens, uh, which as you say, sort of is used some in 1915 as, as well. Um, is that 
is is there much modification ultimately in that 1940 text or is it really just a uh, more concise version of what they were saying in 1915? I think the latter, almost a codification, I would say. And they're really a putting more in uh, almost statutory form mm -hmm. uh, the, the basic principles of the 1915 declaration, some, some modifications, but essentially the same principles. So I, I think it's the same notion that academic freedom extends to rights of citizens, which means rights of political expression. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, certainly how it's um, uh, been spun and interpreted um, uh, since then. Um, so the special obligations are an interesting uh, element that uh, sort of gets de-emphasized uh, somewhat systematically uh, by professors uh, over time as we talk about these issues. Uh, universities, on the other hand, often right. have embraced the whole language, including the special obligations, and universities sometimes want to uh, emphasize the special obligation part of it. And so uh, the AAP language um, uh, in, in characterizing sort of what are our obligations when we're speaking um, as citizens emphasizes we should remember uh, that the public may judge uh, their profession and their institution by their utterances, that they should strive to be accurate, um, exercise appropriate restraint, show respect for the opinion of others, and should be clear they're not speaking uh, for, uh, for the institution. Um, so that's a lot of special obligations. Why all these special obligations and, and what's uh, become uh, significant about those um, as it's played out over time? Well, it's consistent with the 1915 declaration as I indicated mm -hmm. in talking about it. And I think many uh, people in the AUP felt that professors should behave as professors with respect to all their speech, including their political speech. And that has caused, the, as you've yeah. uh, referred to, like lots of problems because there are many cases of, of AUP investigations sure. of uh, assertions of academic freedom when universities have relied on the kind of inappropriately, inappropriate tone of professors' speech as a ground for discipline, even dismissal, citing this language. Right, right. So it's been, it's been a real problem. And the AAPs respond to that in part by sort of re-characterizing this language, or depending on how you think it was originally phrased as whether it's a re-characterization, uh, but, but AUPs sort of emphasize that we ought to regard this as more aspirational uh, than conditional, that um, uh, it'd be nice if professors uh, were to take that kind of care, um, uh, but it shouldn't necessarily be used as a uh, condition for their employment if they fail to uh, meet those standards. In fact, my understanding is, though once again, this is not something I've investigated myself uh, in original sources, but from my reading, I think the people in the AUP who are involved in negotiations with the Association of American Colleges, an organization of universities, so that was very important. That right. A 1940 statement endorsed both by the AUP and by an association of colleges, it's a powerful argument for enforcing it as a matter of contract law. Right, right. Uh, the AUP people, my understanding is, wanted that language to be aspirational and they meant it. They, right. And they didn't intend for it to be the basis for administrative action or discipline. Mm -hmm. 
But in the course of negotiations over the 1940 statement, that's what happened. That's my understanding. That's interesting. Yeah, because it's um because um, it is a kind of I mean, because you can imagine even so. It's your sense from 1915, for example, that the uh, and then as it develops up to 1940. That, that even when the sort of originators of this kind of language and this kind of set of concerns um, are thinking uh, professors ought to be fairly restrained in public, um, even in those early days, they're mostly not thinking, and you ought to get fired if you uh, are going out being a rabble rouser at public rallies. Um, uh, they were just thinking, uh, shame on you for doing that. And we should encourage people uh, to behave better than that. I'm not sure they thought about rabble rousers at public rallies. So I'm not sure yeah. what was said about that. But one thing that is very important and worth stressing is the 1915 Declaration and the AAP ever since has emphasized the importance of peer review in determining whether a violation of academic freedom has taken place. Right. And the notion is only peers can determine whether uh, academic speech meets academic standards and is there, therefore deserving of the protection of academic freedom. And that is extremely dangerous to have non-experts mm -hmm. assess the speech of professors. And I, my sense is the framers of the 1915 Declaration, probably at the time of the 1940 Statement too, assumed that these issues should be determined, if determined at all, by peers uh the trouble arises when non-academics subject to political pressure make these determinations with respect to free speech generally with respect to issues related to academic expertise right yes so and this ties back to the aspirational notion rather mm -hmm. than basis for discipline notion particularly basis for discipline by administrators yeah, although interesting to mention that because if the if part of the rationale of why you want sort of a jury of your peers making the decisions about academic speech as well is this sense of uh, you you want the academic experts evaluating the quality of the academic speech that's in question uh, in the classroom or in the scholarship, for example, you don't want uh, non-specialists or non-expert administrators uh, making that call. Presumably that's less true though in this context where we're thinking about extramural speech that's precisely not about um, uh, your area of expertise. It's less obvious that um, uh, the your colleagues as professionals um, have any special insight uh, into uh, these kinds of restraint. What, what counts as showing respect for the opinion of others and exercising appropriate restraint, uh, for example, that's part of this prong. Um, why should your colleagues have any special role as opposed to the president of the university simply saying, yeah, in my judgment, you haven't shown adequate respect for others and that's, that's, that's the end of it. So the claim of expertise weakens for sure, but the concern about improper motivation remains, I think, mm -hmm. with respect to speech as well as to, with respect to political speech as well as with respect to academic speech. So I, I would, uh, I don't think there's any clear statement on this right. in the early literature, but the thought was even with respect to, and from them it was still academic freedom when it was political expression, better left that determination with faculty who are more, likely to make the correct assessment of whether right. it should be protected or not, even under these higher standards, because you can't really trust administrators, trustees, state legislators right. to 
Yeah, so this is still back to sort of more checks and balances and concerns about pretext than it is really that um, uh, the rationale sort of shifts as to it why it is we want your the your your fellow professors making these assessments and being involved in the process. The the, the rationale for that would shift, and when you're talking about this kind of speech as opposed to um, uh, scholarly articles that people are objecting to. And I would add that the major justification for the protection of academic freedom in the 1915 declaration does not extend to political expression. Mm -hmm. it, because the point of protecting professors' speech through academic freedom is to protect their expert professional views that contribute to the production and dissemination of knowledge which in turn benefits society. That's the central argument. It's a convincing one to me. Right. It doesn't convincingly apply to political expression unrelated to academic expertise. Right, so just to be clear, you're not questioning that in fact we have that. Right? That, that in fact, the, this third prong has been adopted and people in fact do have protections to speak as citizens. You're just saying, as they were originally conceptualizing the academic freedom, it should not have been logically extended to uh, in, in this way. Yes, I agree yeah. with President Lowell. I'm glad right. you're clarifying that. And, and it's an important point. Free speech should be protected too. Right. <laughs> expression should be protected. It wasn't so much in 1915. It became a lot more protected through the 60s and 70s. Due to recent Supreme Court decisions, it's a lot less protected recently than it has yeah. been. But right. uh, my own view is that professors should be protected in their political expression, just as other public employees should be, just as citizens should be, uh, but academic freedom doesn't do it. You need a free speech justification, which is different than academic freedom, in my view. Right, right, right. So we should we should be thinking about this more clearly as free speech, and we should justify it uh, and and the kind of protections that are are offered to it uh, in those terms. Um, uh, but but you would say that, that ought to be robustly protected. Um, yes, and that yeah. universities very should not take political expression into account in making right. university decisions as a general matter. Right, right. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. So, it, so you get this language that gets built into a lot of university um, uh, governing documents, faculty handbooks, and the like. Um, uh, simply um, cut and paste um, uh, these kind of protections, um, and then they and then they layer them with uh, other parts of faculty handbooks and contracts and the like with other kinds of restrictions, including uh, things about engaging in, if you engage in unprofessional conduct as a professor, or, uh, major violations of sort of normal uh, behavior for professors that can get you into disciplinary uh, trouble. How should we see the relationship between those two things, that kind of language that shows up sometimes in the disciplinary component of the faculty handbook um, of uh, you are acting um, uh, in ways that are unprofessional um, uh, compared to this language um, that's in this prong about sort of thinking about this particular kind of speech and you ought to strive for accuracy and res being respectful and that kind of thing. Well, I think there are grounds for taking disciplinary action, including dismissal against faculty members for matters that do not relate to academic freedom one way or the other. Mm -hmm. like sexual harassment or actual, you know, physical assault. 
that should be grounds for dismissal. I don't think there's much debate about that. Right. That is an academic freedom issue. I think it's a matter of, you know, it's worse than unprofessional. It, right. And also a lot of that's against the law, but it doesn't have to be against the law. Right. The, the legitimate reasons for universities to take disciplinary action against people for matters unrelated to speech issues, whether it's political expression or academic freedom. Yeah, one of the cases I've, I found interesting sort of looking at this kind of stuff, it would happen at a public university. And so as a consequence, it um, had in addition to the contractual hooks of, uh, of the university guaranteeing some of these things um, also had some um, constitutional significance. Um, but a, a professor in the, I think it was the late 60s, may have been the early 70s. Uh, but in that time frame, imagine part of the long I 60s. remember it well. Yeah, exactly. Well. <laughs> uh, professors start behaving a little differently than they might have uh, at an earlier uh, period. Uh, and in this case, a professor stood up at a, a university faculty meeting uh, and called the university president a bunch of names because uh, he was unhappy uh, with um, uh, things the, the university president had said about the faculty uh, in public. Um, uh, the university president had previously expressed uh, some unhappiness about uh, these long-haired uh, faculty members um, at that point. And the president said, you know, look, you're being uncivil. This is inappropriate for a professor. It's... it's um, uh, uh, behavior that should not be protected and tried to fire him in that case, which is what generated um, uh, the court case. And so it is sort of this, it's, so, so one, it's, it raises an interesting element of sort of what counts as speaking as a citizen. This was at a university meeting talking about university policy and governance issues. So it's a sort of citizen of the campus um, speaking at a general uh, meeting. And then it goes to this question about how respectful do you have to be um, uh, to other people? In this case, how respectful do you really have to be uh, to a university president um, uh, before you uh, get yourself in, in hot water from an academic freedom perspective? Um, so uh, how many names can you call your university president before you can be uh, reasonably fired given uh, this AUP uh, language and commitment? Right, well, the AUP has more recent uh, statements on the danger of using quote unquote civility as a grounds for discipline because it's too easy to use civility to cover speech someone doesn't like. Uh, and one also can argue convincingly that in the university context, it's under, you know, people mix it up, people have different right. views, they debate. That's part of what it means to be a professor at a university. Uh, there should be more room for disagreement and even strong language in a university than in other institutional settings. Yeah, I mean, at some point, kind of vituperative abuse, uh, using epithets, you know, even if it's not illegal, at some point, it's, I, well, I would say it is unprofessional and shouldn't be protected by any notion of academic freedom or free speech. So uh, that kind of abuse is directed sort of one-on-one -on -one to another person, which is often what the harassment um, policies are designed to capture, as opposed to, um, and in this case, for example, the president apparently wasn't even at the uh, university faculty meeting, but you uh, say, you know, the president of the university is a bullheaded jerk um, uh, at a faculty meeting, and the president takes offense when he hears about it the next day. Um, uh, is, is, is that sort of outside, is it perfectly reasonable given this kind of language to say, look, you're not, not now, you're now not showing res proper respect um, uh, to your uh, colleagues and fellow members of the campus community, uh, and now you're in trouble. 
No, because that doesn't show someone's lack of fitness to be a professor. Uh, and it's not the kind of speech that makes it impossible for a university to function as an institution. So obviously that kind of speech should not be grounds for disciplinary action, I believe. And it's a good example of why it shouldn't be. It's just too easy for a president who doesn't like criticism uh, to discipline a faculty member in that way. Right. Yeah, certainly this this uh, I mean, it's a longstanding concern by thinking about political speech in general as to what what kind of utterances are sufficiently respectful or sufficiently careful with the truth. Um, uh, for example, it's fairly easy to start um, uh, going through uh, language with a fine tooth comb and, and discover, uh, oh, uh, you you said something that wasn't quite right. Um, uh, or you said a little too emotionally uh, when you said something. And so now we're going to um, uh, bringing up on disciplinary charges in, in this kind of context. Right. Um, uh, so, so this is worth saying a little more about this issue of um, speaking as a citizen of the university community. This has been significant over time as it's developed. It was not part of the examples you were giving as they were thinking in 1915, for example, in the very early days about extramural speech where they were thinking about speeches occurring outside uh, the campus walls. Um, they're not necessarily thinking about this kind of what sometimes characterizes as intramural speech when you're speaking uh, in department meetings and faculty meetings, speaking on campus grounds um, uh, generally. Uh, when did that become, or was it always a significant conception of what it means to be a citizen and have freedom to speak as a citizen? Um, did that mean, well, not only is your citizenship in the larger polity, um, but also your citizenship in the university community um, ought to be protected? So I think protection for what we now call intramural speech, as you've described it, always was implicit mm -hmm. in AAP documents, including the 1915 Declaration, because remember, the 1915 Declaration applied to all expression by professors. It didn't differentiate based on related to specialty or not. So yeah. I, they intended to cover intramural speech, I believe. And most particularly, getting back to the role of peer review that was yeah. in the 1915 Declaration, to perform peer review, you have to speak. <laughs> Is this speech within the academic discipline? Should this person be appointed or promoted to tenure? So certainly that kind of speech, which is intramural speech, uh, was considered to you know needed to be protected though it wasn't specifically identified as a separate category and i was only recently has the aaup more specifically identified intramural speech as needing to be protected though i think the protection for intramural speech has been implicit throughout uh, there was an aup document in 1994 called on the relationship of faculty governance to academic freedom, mm -hmm. expressed that relationship. And of course, you have to speak as part of faculty governance. So intramural speech has been identified more specifically uh, in recent years, but protection has been implicit throughout. But here on our kind of distinction between academic freedom and political expression, what's covered by academic freedom, right. Not, I would say uh, some intramural speech relates to much intramural speech relates to educational issues. 
Now that's not within the core academic expertise of the subject matter, right? right. The core protection of academic freedom, but in a, a joint document called the Statement on Government, Government, which includes associations of universities, uh, the AAUP and these other university organizations emphasize that the expertise, expertise, which is the tie to academic freedom of faculty, extends beyond their subject matter expertise to matters of educational policy generally. So I would say academic freedom ought to cover that kind of intramural expression. Mm -hmm. But if you're complaining about the university's investment policies uh, or arguing that someone has committed fraud, I mean, that, that should be protected by free speech. Uh, but it's not related to expertise and therefore, unless you're an accountant saying it's fraud. Right. right. That should be protected by general rights of free speech. And I, I, I think that distinction needs to be emphasized and clarified because the strength of the defense of academic freedom depends on its association with expert speech. That's what justifies special free speech protection for academics, which cuts against the general notion that freedom of speech is an equal right of citizens in a democracy. And the argument is, yes, with respect to political speech, that should be true, but there are arguments, and not just for academic speech, in other contexts, that there should be different rules in different contexts when it doesn't relate to political expression, such as the employment context itself. There are more reasons for the government as employer to restrict the speech of its employees, mm -hmm. the government as sovereign to restrict the speech of citizens. But once the uh, identification of academic freedom with expertise and the contribution of expertise to the social interest in the production and dissemination of knowledge slips, it loses power. Yeah, yeah. And so just to tease out, I guess, one potential implication of what you just said and emphasizing that distinction um, is we might think that while academic freedom is particularly important for uh, professors because it's tied to their expertise. And so protecting what professors are doing in the classroom, protecting what professors are doing in their scholarship is a unique feature of their job and, and what they do on university campuses. That's not so true about political speech more generally. So if we think this broader category of extramural speech really ought to be protected because it's free speech broadly and it's important for universities to care about that. The pretextual claim that this is just going to be the back door by which you fire professors because you don't like what they're doing in the classroom may still be unique to professors. But other aspects of that argument would equally say, look, there are staff members on campus who ought to That's be protected. Right. There are students who ought to be able to have- Who could be speech. fired for pretextual grounds as well. And they could be fired for pretextual grounds as well, potentially, right? And so so once you separate that category out and so think about this, this bundle of free speech activities, then professors are no longer particularly special either about um, uh, what kind of protections they ought to get vis-a-vis -vis anyone else on campus. Uh, really, the logic of the arguments would seem to suggest everybody on campus ought to be entitled um, uh, to the equivalent uh, kind of speech protections. Or do you think there's still some room there to try to distinguish, to say, no, no, there's something special about professors still that's different than uh, administrators? 
I don't believe there are arguments that are convincing uh, to give professors more protection for their political expression than other employees. Others say, not just to avoid the problem of pretext, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, some say if, if uh, the general political expression of professors is the basis for discipline, then professors will worry that their academic speech might be in jeopardy as well. And they might, I get that. I don't think that argument is strong enough. Mm -hmm. Professors, extra protection with respect to political expression, and it cuts against the fundamental norm of equality in First Amendment law. And there's some judicial resistance to treating academic freedom as a First Amendment right, misplaced resistance, I feel, based on this notion of equality as a norm of the First Amendment. I would answer that concern by saying, yes, it is a norm and it should be enforced with respect to political, political expression, but there are all kinds of contexts in mm -hmm. which courts have found different First Amendment rights in different institutions. So for example, it's black letter constitutional law, you know, there's more room for freedom of expression in a university than in a military base. Right. Or, right in a library rather than uh, a prison. So institutional context, traditionally it's made a difference in First Amendment law. Right, so you're in, an opt in your optimal world, you'd have um, an academic freedom policy that really looks more like the first two prongs um, of the AUP policy. And then you'd have a general free speech policy um, that would uh, not be specific to professors, but would just be a more general uh, policy for the uh, university community more, more generally. Right, I'm writing a long book trying to justify that position. <laughs> the first two prongs being what, Keith? The first two prongs being the teaching and the scholarship, right? Yes, so that's the, right. Out of the right, three, exactly. the list of three things that the universities, uh, the universities have sort of adopted from the 1940 statement. So. And I would extend First Amendment yeah. academic freedom to what we've called intramural speech to the extent that intramural speech addresses educational issues within the broader expertise of faculty. It's still connected to expertise, not as directly as teaching and scholarship, but in my view, directly enough. But that's a more debatable issue of whether that falls within academic freedom or free speech. Yeah, and a nuanced position, right? Because as you say, it's 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 closely connected to uh, shared university governance, um, which faculty traditionally at least have claimed us or a special role in, although there are certainly claims to be made that others in the campus community also ought to be part of the shared governance of a campus. And, and um, at Princeton, for example, there are mem other members of the campus community who serve on uh, various committees um, that make uh, policy relating to um, uh, the university. So there's certainly some pressures in that regard. Um, I think it depends on the issue to some extent. Yeah. So yeah. If, the, if, if it's speech about curriculum, what the curriculum should be, I, there the, it, it relates to expertise of faculty that others don't have. On other issues, uh, the special claim to expertise is less, and on some, it's not existence, like, in, like investment policy, I would say. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so it's actually in my, in my home department, for example, we have uh, 
a committee that signs off on uh, the graduate curriculum and the undergraduate curriculum. So everything gets changed in the classes, what classes we offer, what the requirements of the program are and the like. And partially as a consequence of 1960s era reforms, uh, there are students who serve on those committees. Um, right. And so, uh, as you say, not a lot of expertise necessarily um, on the part of those committee members um, on uh, what exactly the uh, uh, curriculum ought to look like. Um, but, but that's the kind of shared governance uh, we've, we've wound up embracing in, in our more uh, democratic moment uh, at Princeton. I could defend the student interest in having input into that issue. Having been the first student member of a faculty educational committee when I was an undergraduate in the late 1960s. Uh, yeah. But you're right, uh, there are different levels of expertise, no doubt. So in, in intramural speech, I mean, it's it's often doesn't get as much attention as these extramural speech examples um, uh, do. And I think that's still the case in general. Um, but it's striking, we've seen a little um, uptick of controversy surrounding that kind of on-campus, uh, campus policy related uh, kinds of speech right. disputes, in particular around uh, pandemic response and mask policy and the like, where uh, we've had uh, several universities um, uh, really try to crack down on faculty criticizing university administrators for what kind of policies they've adopted. Um, and uh, but that, but this, that, those kinds of arguments about should faculty be able to encourage students to mask in their classroom? Can they reasonably criticize the university for what masking policy the university broadly has developed? Um, all wind up getting tied up in this sort of question about well, what exactly is the scope of this intramural speech you have? Yes, and that's a tough issue to me because mm -hmm. A lot of masking policy has to do with public health issues about which university faculty ought to have a say, as well as other university yeah. employees, but it's not within expertise. There may be some claim with respect to masking that it affects the nature of the educational interchange in a class, and that comes closer to kind of an expertise, academic freedom kind of claim. Mm -hmm. Although often, interestingly, the way this plays out is, is you have faculty wanting uh, a stronger masking policy than what university administrators have adopted. And presumably the claim about well, mass somehow interferes with the educational process that cuts the other direction. And so instead faculty are saying, you're, you're not being careful enough about our health um, of which presumably faculty has no real expertise in. Um, right. But we want to say, but I, and I therefore would like to encourage all my students in my classes to wear masks, for example. And some universities say, no, you can't do that. So do you have a view about whether or not faculty in general ought to be able to, if, uh, so beyond the question of uh, when, which has happened at some places where um, uh, there's been general debate about what the, what the university's policy ought to be and, fa and uh, some universities have uh, cracked down on faculty who are too critical of what the university has done on that. Um, what about the specific issue of uh, classroom uh, guidelines about um, uh, uh, whether or not you want students in your class to wear a mask if the general university policy is, for example, no one has to wear masks. Can, can, is, it, is it a form of protected academic speech for, for a professor to tell their own students in their own class, uh, you should wear a mask when you come into my classroom? You know, there are lots of issues, and this may be one, mm -hmm. where both the professor and the university as an institution have legitimate interests. Uh -huh. And uh, this statement on government kind of acknowledges 
you know, shared interests, but some interests are more within the realm of faculty, some more within the realm of administration. I agree with that. And on your specific example, I think general mask policy is more a university institutional decision. Mm -hmm. You know, faculty ought to be involved, but I'm not sure they have to really be involved in making the decision. It could be a healthcare uh -huh. policy. And yes, it may have some impact on the education in the classroom, but that impact to me is insufficient compared to the greater interest of the university in establishing a policy. Right. I've so partially your control over teaching that issue before, but that's my initial. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, I think they're, they are, they are different issues than what you normally see in this context. And, and it, but it raises interesting questions about sort of how much control over the classroom environment do faculty get to exercise. And so certainly the 1940 statement sort of specifically emphasizes what kind of materials can you talk about? What topics can you talk about in your classroom? Uh, they're not focused on thinking about what can you control about your classroom environment more, more broadly. And um, uh, as you say, there may be real differences between uh, what if we're talking about, well, what readings can I assign and how can I talk about them um, as opposed to uh, making requirements about what students have to wear in class, for example. You know, I came across, uh... An interesting case where a university department of foreign languages adopted a policy requiring mm -hmm. use of the foreign language in all non-introductory courses. If you're teaching right. intermediate Spanish, the course has to be in Spanish. And a professor claimed that violated his academic freedom to determine whether to teach in English or whether to teach in Spanish, which is a pedagogical issue. Yeah. In my view, the department decision made on behalf of the university is weightier uh -huh. than the individual professor's interest in deciding which language to teach in. The departmental policy is justifiable. Uh, but that decision better be made, in my view, by a department and not some administrator who right. knows nothing about foreign languages. So in, in uh, assessing these conflicting tensions between professors and universities, to me, a lot depends on who is making the decision on behalf right. of the university. Right. Yeah. And there are interesting questions about it, because as you say, that's that's an example where that's let's assume the department makes a policy decision about what's gonna happen in classrooms. Uh, the faculty, individual faculty member wants to make a different decision about how their own uh, classroom is going to operate. Um, it's, it's, I hadn't ever thought about the this kind of foreign language uh, example, but of course the examples that are common are things like, um, uh, is the department or the larger school going to make decisions about what the common textbook is going to be used? That's across different yes. sections. Do you have to use the same syllabus and talk about the same topics across different sections, go. for example? Right. Right. And the professional schools in particular often seem to do this in ways that in the arts and sciences, uh, we tend to 
uh, be a little more individualistic about how we approach these things. But, but my sense is in professional schools, it's much more common um, to uh, make collective decisions saying we're all going to use the same book. And so it doesn't matter which section a student signs up for, they're going to get the same book and they're going to cover the same uh, topics. And it's not up to the individual professor to deviate for, from that. And to me, that's very different than uh -huh. the individual professor, what to say about the topic that is covered in the book. That's a real academic freedom problem. I don't think that yeah. you can say that, but to say, especially in an introductory course, we want all of our students to have covered this material so they can take a later course. That makes sense to me. You know, in a course in uh, 19th century American history, I think it's reasonable for the department to expect some coverage of the Civil War. Right. I, I, I just don't see that individual interest in determining what's taught, which exists as overriding the general departmental concern. So, so you're tempting me to it's drift all further. from political expression. This is all academic. No, I was going to say, you're tempting me to drift further and further away. And instead, I would, I would put a pin in that and use an excuse to bring you back, uh, uh, perhaps when the book is out, and uh, talk about uh, those those issues more generally. So let me drag it back uh, to the extramural speech, uh, uh, particular uh, kinds of controversies. Um, so, um, so some of this we've we've mentioned before in thinking about uh, the civility issue, but but there's. Uh, a particularly high-profile example of this, uh, where that people were fighting over uh, not too long ago, and that's the Stephen Slida case um, at the University of Illinois, which turned in part on this question of um, civility and what respect do you have to add, and sort of special obligations that might go along uh, with extramural speech. Um, so uh, the Slida case occurred in in 2014. Um, it was has this complication about the fact that Slida was in the process of being hired um, by the American Indian Studies Program at the University of Illinois uh, when his social media post about the conflict between Israel and, Pal and Palestinians and the Gaza Strip became an issue. Um, so laying aside that question about what considerations were due to him before the Board of Regents um, took a final vote um, on his job offer, um, the chancellor uh, said in withdrawing his offer um, that the university cannot tolerate uh, personal and disrespectful words or actions that demean and abuse other viewpoints themselves or those who express them. And professors had a duty to discuss their opinions in a civil and productive uh, manner, um, which I suspect that language goes beyond whatever language University of Illinois had on the books uh, for these things. But it certainly echoes some of the stuff that um, uh, the AUP emphasizes being sort of part of the special obligations of, of faculty um, uh, that's in the, the 1940 statement. So how civil do professors have to be on Twitter, uh, which is where uh, Salida in particular was posting um, and is um, a, a format that I think particularly encourages people not to be very civil. Um, and so as a consequence, it's gotten a lot of people uh, in, in trouble over time. So um, uh, if, if professors are gonna be on social media, they're going to participate in these kinds of heated political exchanges in very short form in public um, of this um, uh, sort. Um, uh, I suspect some of the 1915 professors would have said, you people right. should get off Twitter. <laughs> Stop that. But how civil do professors have to be when they're on Twitter? Well, if my understanding is Soleil's tweets had to do with Israeli policy, uh, and he used expletives, right, uh, to 
characterize both the policy and the people implementing it. Yeah. In my view, by the way, and there, there were issues raised about whether his views about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict related to his expertise in some ways, which is an interesting question in itself. Right. But my view, whether they related or not even, I don't think people are expected or should be expected to be scholarly in tone when they use Twitter. Right. Professors should be held to the same standards as everybody else. Now, there's a lot of debate now going on about the extent to which people ought to be regulated and how they use social media. Right. But as to whether professors are different, in my view, they're not. That uh, Salata is that? Am I pronouncing his name right? I've heard it both ways, Salata okay. and Salida. So I don't. I'm not sure. He, he should not be held to higher standards of Twitter use with respect to a public controversy than should any other citizen. But, or and, if he's tweeting about people within the university community, that's gratuitous and harmful to interpersonal relations unrelated to the discussion of an idea, mm -hmm. uh, in my view, that can be subject to discipline. And my own view, uh, and I guess I'm in the middle, you know, a lot, as many listeners will know, American law is unique in the world in protecting offensive, hateful, even harmful speech. Some people think that's one of the great characteristics of our legal system. Some people think, no, it's an unfortunate. And look how much of an outlier it is. You can have a democratic society while still allowing for the punishment of certain kinds of hate speech and offensive speech. It's a big debate. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever the resolution of that debate, I mean, let's assume current extremely protective First Amendment law remains in the mm -hmm. I do think that in the institutional academic freedom of the university, that's not something we've discussed much, right. but academic freedom has been extended to universities as institutions by the Supreme Court. Uh, I think that certain hate speech, offensive speech that harms, that is protected in the public sphere could be subject to regulation within the university based on the adverse impact on the ability to learn and to educate it, mm -hmm. to educate. So I would allow the university in its institutional academic freedom to regulate hate speech on campus for educational reasons. And it's conceivable to me that some tweets would be subject to regulation under that standard, mm -hmm. as opposed to, in my view, hate speech that can harm, that's associated with ideas that are the subject matter of a course. Mm -hmm. There, I think the hate speech, offensive speech, 
even if it harms, needs to be protected if it's relevant to the discussion of the subject matter of the course. Right. But would you say that's equally true about the association between the, the hateful speech and the ideas if it's not course related, for example, but as part of a broader pub, uh, political discussion? Because that's part of the issue with, uh, with Slida's situation, that he was uh, that the, the part of the claim was that his criticism of Israel uh, was uh, so strong and extreme um, that uh, Jewish students, for example, would have regarded it as hateful and uh, to have made them feel uncomfortable taking his classes and the like, not because he had been singling them out on Twitter to criticize his own individual students, for example, uh, but because of uh, how he was talking about um, uh, the Israelis-Palestinian conflict um, uh, uh, publicly. My view is that his speech should be protected, notwithstanding that possible result, mm-hmm. because it's political. And the students just need to be told, you know, they, I, I think the university should be able to respond to these student concerns and address them. But to explain, as my view is, that this is lawful speech in American law, and the university cannot, it's back to Lowell mm-hmm. right. of World War One. After all, he, the, the speaker was supporting an enemy of the United States, so supporting the German position in World War One, uh, which obviously caused, could cause a lot of harm. If it's protected speech, uh, in the public sphere, the impact on people within the university should not be grounds for a university to punish it, in my view. Mm-hmm. If he brought that speech, if he said those things to someone on campus, mm-hmm. if he brought those uh, that speech into the classroom tendentiously, that should be subject to punishment, right. but not general political speech, even if it not only offends, but harms the ability of people on campus to learn, in my view, if it's protected external speech. If it's on campus, more possibility for regulating, but not if it's about the discussion of an idea. Right, right. So we've seen a similar kind of uh, set of concerns and controversy arising around um, Georgetown Law Professor, Georgetown uh, University Law Center, um, and particular questions about the newly hired lecturer um, and administrator Ilya Shapiro. Um, The Active Freedom Alliance uh, weighed in uh, in support of Shapiro um, and whether or not he ought to be uh, disciplined there. In which I concurred. In which which you you totally (laughs) concurred, right? But so so it's worth playing this out a little bit. So he um, there's claims he ought to be fired uh, for um, his tweet um, or a series of tweets uh, saying that Biden had boxed himself in uh, to appointing, uh, in Shapiro's words, a lesser black woman uh, for the vacancy on the Supreme Court rather than Shapiro's own favorite um, candidate. Um, uh, Paul Butler, who is also a professor at Georgetown University Law Center, recently published an op-ed um, in the Washington Post, um, uh, arguing that uh, that kind of uh, statement 
um, by Shapiro um, is fireable um, uh, for a law professor to engage in. He argues that uh, it reveals Shapiro does not have the ability to do his job, that there's a fitness concern raised uh, by this kind of extramural speech. So how should we think about the relationship between extramural speech and uh, uh, fitness and whether or not, um, uh, uh, in this case, sort of uh, emotionally, racially charged speech um, uh, raises questions about the fitness of a faculty member, um, but you can imagine other circumstances where it might raise uh, fitness issues as, as well. To me, it's like the Salida case. It's the mm -hmm. issue. Uh, fitness has to do with teaching and scholarship uh, and speech outside the university. Uh, I, I, it doesn't relate to fitness, in my view. And by the way, this speech in particular, is, it's someone's idea. You know, it's, uh, some may perceive it to be a racist idea. It's an idea. Uh, I, I don't think it shows that he's unfit to teach. Mm -hmm. What he does in class or in scholarship shows whether he's fit to teach or not. Let me just add one thing that is relevant, I think. Let's say he was accused of saying something in class that revealed unfitness right. by inappropriate direct comments to an African-American student, for example. I could see this external speech perhaps as being probative as right. evidence about uh, what he might have done in class as being consistent with it and it might be relevant but before you get to that outside speech i'd want to have something from inside the classroom that gives grounds for doubt about mm -hmm. the professor's unfitness Right, right. Um, so let me just briefly come back to one last uh, question then before we uh, wrap up. And that's uh, in some ways taking the issue that I sort of bracketed with the slightest situation, because as I know, it's the one of the complications about um, his situation was his, his job offer had not been finalized um, yet because the Board of Regents had not yet um, approved his uh, uh, tenure offer, um, although it had gone through um, a lot of the rest of the uh, internal process, which created some contract law complications as well as other things. But just from an academic freedom um, uh, perspective, um, it seems like there's an interesting um, issue there that um, doesn't get talked about very much is about to what degree a job candidate's extramural speech should be properly taken into account uh, when considering whether or not to extend an offer, right? So if um, the faculty um, uh, in the department um, had been reading through his Twitter feed um, and was thinking about, okay, is this like somebody we want to hire? Um, and a hiring committee decides, I don't like the politics this person is expressing. I don't like how they're expressing themselves um, in this uh, political speech. Is it appropriate for the university faculty itself to be taking that into account and decide, I'm gonna skip that person, not gonna make an, a job offer because even though the scholarship looks great, um, I, don't, I don't like his politics. I think that's inappropriate. Extramural speech is relevant to an appointment to the extent that it gives insight into whether the 
candidate would would be a good professor. Most mm -hmm. teaching scholarship. Maybe there's some extramural speech that could relate even to uh, institutional citizenship. But you, in my view, you have to connect the extramural speech to the function function of the professor. Now, of course, extramural speech related to academic expertise, which exists, let's not forget about that category, is totally relevant. Right. Uh, and maybe in, in, in extramural speech, if at a conference someone said something within his field that is just not accepted within the field, it's outside the range of what's considered to be legitimate scholarly discourse as defined by the field, that's relevant. Right. Not political views that are uh, anathema to the existing faculty, in, in my opinion. Yeah, so when we were talking about fitness issues relating to Salida and, and Shapiro, for example, the, the fitness that was sort of most at play was the questions about sort of demeanor, uh, we might say, right. whether you have the proper character uh, to be a professor and a, a teacher and a mentor of, of students and the, and the like, or maybe even the dreaded collegiality issue of whether you're a good colleague um, uh, kind of question. Um, but as you say, there's a, the more traditionally what we tend to think of about fitness in this regard is fitness in terms of subject matter competence. Um, right. uh, do you actually have expertise? And so if I maintained a Twitter feed, uh, the systematically demonstrate, I don't know anything about the subject matter uh, that I'm uh, teaching uh, to my students, a university could quite reasonably look at that Twitter feed and say, wait a second, maybe maybe you no longer have the kind of subject matter competence uh, we're expecting uh, for somebody in, in the classroom. And this is informative about um, whether or not you ought to uh, retain your tenure position. But, but I think a Twitter feed is different than an off-campus lecture. I don't mm -hmm. think people in general understand Twitter as an outlet for scholarly views. So in my opinion, I've got, uh, even if someone Twitters within one's expertise, yeah. indicating uh, a position that lacks academic support, right. my reaction would be, it's a Twitter. It's not a scholarly comment. Whereas something at a conference should be taken into account. So you don't take Twitter with the deadly seriousness that clearly uh, you no, should. It's serious. It's serious, <laughs> but it's not academic. So, so is that a question of? So that's very interesting. So, so is that a question of the sort of attitude of the speaker and how it's received by the audience, or is that a question you think primarily of the format? So, because because part of my concern about uh, using Twitter to assess people on these dimensions is. Uh, look, how much can you really say in 280 characters um, and speaking to a general audience, you're necessarily going to cut some corners right. um, in, in doing that. And that's true even of op-eds and various other forms that's of right. extramural speech where the nature of the format is such that it's not going to be the same as a scholarly paper and we have to have some charity about that translation from one to the other. Um, Exactly. And so there are format issues, but then there may also just be a question of where well, everybody knows that Twitter is just a form of performance art. <laughs> so we just shouldn't take it uh, seriously, even if what you theoretically are talking about on Twitter uh, is, is are things you claim to be expert in. I would say both grounds for not taking Twitter as evidence of scholarly expertise. You know, lawyers, for example, law professors 
sometimes represent clients. Uh-huh. You know, one's obligation, it's not just, it's a different kind of function. Sometimes it's important to shade the facts in favor of your client in ways that would violate academic standards if you were putting it into a law review. Right, right. But I think you know, if it's clear you're working as a lawyer, it's different. Say a, what's your name? Zephyr Teachout ran for right. governor right. of New York. Yeah. Uh, Moynihan was a professor, others, uh, or Keith, if you ran for public office and said something while Don't running forbid. for office, right, that would be kind of inconsistent right. with knowledge in political science. I, you know, you're running for office. It's, you're not presenting yourself as a scholar. Whereas, for, say for a lawyer, if uh -huh. you're writing a scholar's brief, right, I'd hold someone accountable for that. Right. If you're testifying to a legislature on the basis of your scholarly expertise, that's relevant. Right. So it's the format as well as the subject matter, I think, that can be relevant. Right, right. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's uh, and emphasizes how complicated some of these um, speech situations are and what we what inferences we ought to draw from uh, seeing examples of speech. If we have time, I just want to mention this uh, case incident at Northwestern involving the engineer who wrote a book denying the Holocaust. Yes, right. Because it really illustrates, I believe, a lot of the issues we've been discussing. I, so as you can imagine, as people can imagine who are listening, yeah. uh, this denial, Holocaust denial, book length, by an engineer, there was at, or at Northwestern, private school not subject to the First Amendment, but lots of private schools hold themselves to First Amendment standards because they don't want to be themselves see themselves as protecting less speech than a public university has to. Right. Okay. So there was a lot of understandable pressure for Northwestern to take action against this professor of engineering. And I think it was the provost at the time. Mm -hmm. This represented who the administrative officer was. I think it was the provost. We said, look, this is an engineer writing about Holocaust denial. There is no evidence whatsoever that in his class, where he hasn't discussed this at all, or in his publications about engineering, he, he has done anything or said anything to cast doubt on his scholarly competence. Right. When he's writing as an engineer about Holocaust denial, He's not writing as a professor. He's not writing as an academic. It's not academic speech. He should be held to the same standards as everybody else. Now, some people think Holocaust denial ought to be subject right. to punishment, as it is in almost every country of the world except the United States. But that's a different issue about whether it's something that should be punished by the university rather than the state. Okay, but let's say a professor of 20th century history at Northwestern had written the same book. Well, that's evidence of incompetence, isn't it? I don't think within the universe of specialists in 20th century European history, you you know, that's like saying the Earth is flat. As a you know, astronomer, geologist, physicist, uh, that's outside the realm of scholarly uh, expertise. It shows incompetence. Right. That is grounds for discipline and dismissal.
And you would say that's true, even if, for example, that history professor did not bring that into the classroom. And so they published a separate book on a Holocaust denial. But if you actually sat in on all their lectures, they just do the standard stuff uh, when they're talking about um, the Holocaust in World War II, for example. Well, then it, then the violation didn't occur in the classroom, but it did in a scholarly writing. And scholarly writing that indicates incompetence quote unquote scholarly writing. Yeah, I was gonna say the quote unquote writing, scholarly writing is writing uh, portrayed as scholarship by the author, uh-huh, if it doesn't meet basic scholarly standards, is grounds for discipline and even dismissal. Right. And notably the scholarly writing in that context though, that the, the the what makes it scholarly is the relationship between the, the writing and the expertise. Not yes. about where it's published, for example, That's or correct. anything like. So That's it could correct. be a self-published monograph that the guy is handing out on street corners. It would still count as, as scholarly writing in that sense because it's connected to his own asserted claims of expertise, even you know, if it someone, hasn't been peer-reviewed and right. published by university press or something like that. You know, it's. I think I heard as a rumor, so I don't know, that the engineer at Northwestern might have listed this book on his CV, and that makes it because that means he, he's kind of portraying it, it if he does it that way as scholarship. Right. Clearly, is and that makes it a tougher case. But I, you know, for things on the margin, right? If if you say something extramurally that could be considered related to your scholarship, mm-hmm. I think, and I've heard some professors do this. They have separate, they have yeah. a separate CV related to their scholarship. And they don't put their general political writings on it, which I think is a good idea, and which I think can help portray that other work as non-scholarly and not not subject to the standards of academic speech. Uh-huh. Right, right. Yeah, it's just a question about where it goes on CV. So I list these things on my CV, but I have them uh, uh, labeled as being... Uh, uh, I don't remember how I label them actually, but but they're distinguished non-scholarly contributions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is this is the garbage. I also put right. it. Uh, yeah. Doesn't have so, to make it, but different, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know quite what language one has to use in order to. You can still list on your CV, but it doesn't count uh, in quite the same way. But no, political I totally commentary. See the point Could, political gonna, commentary. Yeah, I can certainly see the point. Commentary. If you're going to include it on your CV, then it starts having implications potentially, and you can't simultaneously put on your CV and say, oh, by the way, that doesn't count and you shouldn't look at that. Yeah. One last thing to reiterate, I think, uh, is just because speech is not covered by academic freedom, it doesn't mean it's unprotected. So free speech covers a lot and universities should protect free speech as well as academic freedom. So one shouldn't uh, infer from the distinction between academic freedom speech that free speech should not be protected right yeah no important important um uh, point to uh to make because uh certainly we're concerned with protecting both uh the, the free speech as well as the academic freedom so i really appreciate this and and obviously it touches on lots of uh additional complicated points that uh you have a lot of expertise in and so you're a very fit person to uh, walk us through it uh and and i will uh pull you back into this podcast uh, at some point down the road to um explore uh, some of those aspects in, in greater detail I really appreciate uh, you're having this conversation on on this uh, particular issue. Well, I enjoyed it and I, I look forward to another one. Thank you, Keith. 
so please subscribe to the Academic Freedom Podcast through your favorite platform so that you don't miss an episode um, and rate us on that platform, which will help others find our conversations on campus free speech and academic freedom. Till next time. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.